In the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask your blessing on our efforts again this evening, as always. We ask that you help us to understand a somewhat difficult subject of justification by faith. Help us then to set aside some of our preconceived notions and understandings of what we might have heard or believed. And listen to what your spirit tells us. So give us the strength and the courage, really, to set aside our preconceived notions and open our minds and hearts to you. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name. (coughs) Excuse me. I hope all of you have... uh, the handout for this evening, uh, because the first part of it is in, is important that you really kind of understand and sort of update or bring forward what you may have learned in the past week or two, uh, because it's only when you put all of this together you really get a clearer picture of what Paul's letters are all about, and why the language is uh, sometimes a little harsh, uh, particularly in this letter, and there's one other that he's pretty uh, adamant about getting their attention. So, if you don't mind here, it says the promise was and always has been eternal life. Now, they're talking about, and when we get into chapter 3, They're talking about the promise as well as the fulfillment. And I don't know if you've heard of that expression in the past, but here's the way it comes. All right, I'm going to erase this top part up here. I'm sure that all of you already are aware of this, otherwise you wouldn't be here. Okay. You ever wonder why... The Bible is divided into what is called the Old Testament and the New Testament. Okay. You ever wonder why they called it old? I'll never forget, I was in the grocery store one time standing in the checkout line and there were two ladies right behind me and one said to the other, I wonder why they called it the Old Testament. And the other one said, well, it's old, of course. (laughs) Well, uh, that was for, really for people of, let's say, uneducated people, not stupid people, but uh, people who were uneducated uh, when the Vulgate was first um, written in the 4th century, primarily by St. Jerome. The Vulgate, the word Vulgate comes from the same uh, base word as our word of vulgar meaning a crude language, or the language of the everyday people, all right? But a lot of the everyday people, so-called, were illiterate, not dumb, but were not educated well enough. And so Old Testament, meaning everything prior to Christ uh, in Scripture, was just generally called Old Testament, and everything new, since the 4th or 5th century, was called the New Testament. 
but that's not really very descriptive of what they are. The Old Testament comes really from the covenant that God made beginning with Abraham. And of course, this letter talks quite a bit about Abraham, and we'll get into that. But it really begins with a promise. And a promise is really not the covenant, but the promise is eternal life. But the people in the days of Abraham and up through Christ really would not have understood what eternal life was all about. And so they had to use other words and they took the words out of the covenant, meaning the covenant was made up of three different parts. This is the first covenant that God made with Abraham, all right? Descendants, first of all, was the most important. As you know, Abraham and his wife were quite elderly, way beyond normal childbearing age. God sure knew what he was doing when he cut off that, didn't you? Anyways, they were way beyond childbearing age, but he promised them a direct descendant, a son. He also promised land. Now, these were nomadic people who moved around a lot because their life depended on their flocks or their herds. And they moved from pasture to pasture depending on the weather, the seasons, and the locale uh, to feed their pastures, their their flocks, excuse me. Um, And then the last thing was God's protection. But the protection really was not only physical protection, but eventually it was to lead them to eternal life. So together, that makes up the whole idea of the promise. So the Old Testament, and I'm going to abbreviate that, O-T, really should be called the book of the promise because it all leads up to the promise of Jesus Christ who was the key ingredient for eternal life. All of the books of the Old Testament point in some way to Christ. Now, none of them mention Jesus Christ by name, but they all particularly the latter part of the book of Isaiah, and so many other parts of the prophets. So, then if that is the promise, the New Testament then is is really called the book of the fulfillment. Because it was through Jesus Christ that eternal life was given to mankind. All right. Does that make sense? Does that put a little bit of uh, understanding between the differences, the two main parts of the Bible? Okay. All right. The book of the promise and the book of fulfillment. So, 
we are talking here now about the promise, all right? Because Paul gets into that, and I'll get into some of the details, but I want to read what is written here um, because it sets the scene. The promise was and always has been eternal life to those who live and die in the good graces of God. The covenant is how we get there or how they got there or would get there in the beginning. All right. And not by observance of the Mosaic law. The Mosaic law was given to the Jewish people as the beginning of structure. But between the time of Abraham and the time of Moses, a period of roughly, and I'm saying very roughly, 500 years, Paul mentions 430 in this book, uh, but he's not taking into consideration uh, the ages of Abraham, because Abraham was quite elderly at the time, all right? So, during that 500 years, there was no Mosaic law. And so, Abraham, even though there is talk of uh, the rite of circumcision during the, the Abraham's time, that was not part of the Mosaic law, because there wasn't any Mosaic law. But, as... Paul refers to it here, and it's again referred to in the book of Hebrews, that God credited Abraham, his obedience, uh, and his uh, allegiance or fidelity to the one true God as justification. Now, you've all heard the word, uh, but there's a lot of confusion as to what exactly it means. All right. Uh, it says, Paul's argument here is that we get there, we get through the covenant uh, by faith in life and death, in the life and death of Jesus Christ. That is the new and eternal covenant now. And not by observance of the Mosaic law. This was extremely difficult for the Jews to accept and understand because they didn't really accept or understand who Jesus Christ was. It took a long time, even for Christians, to figure that out and really get to think of it uh, in the way we do, and probably never did in the first century. So we are very privileged to really understand, as well as we do, what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was all about and the benefits that are derived from that. Okay. So as however, during the 2,000 years, uh, God prepared all of the Jewish people down throughout the ages uh, for this change to come. And they did not see it. And they did not see it even in Jesus Christ when their Messiah, who was predicted and mentioned in the Old Testament, uh, stood right before them. So, now, let's kind of set the scene as we did in the past. Um, to understand the problem in Galatians, we must keep in mind the events leading up to the writing of this letter. 
See, Paul established these various house churches in the province of Galatia, which is now Turkey, country of Turkey. And he established several of them uh, roughly five years or so before this letter is written. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean he stayed there with them, obviously. He moved around quite a bit. Um, but he left each one in charge of somebody that took it into uh, their hands of following through. Now, all they had was a brief sketch of who Jesus was and what the breaking of the bread ceremony was all about. Uh, it was in commemoration of his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sin. All right? So that's really all they had because there wasn't any New Testament uh, even at that time. There were, there was only a, a few of the letters of Paul. They probably never got up there to Galatia yet. Uh, this is probably the fourth or fifth letter that he wrote. All right? Because you had um, Thessalonians 1 and 2 before that, uh, Corinthians 1. Uh, so this could be the fourth letter, probably. All right. Now, what happens here is that he is getting word that some outsiders, and we'll just use that as a general term, outsiders. And these are Christians who were possibly Jewish converts, or maybe they were Gentile converts. We're not sure. All right. They come into these small house churches and they try to discredit Paul saying that he didn't have all of the information that was necessary to preach what he did. Uh, he never spent any time with any of the apostles. He was not an apostle, etc., etc. And, by the way, uh, all of you uh, Galatian uh Christians now have to observe all of the Jewish laws in order to be a good Christian. Well, of course, you can see the clash right there. But apparently they were very convincing, and so they began to observe the Jewish laws. But when it came to circum circumcision, uh, there was a lot of opposition. And that's how Paul gets wind of all of this going on. And so he writes this letter. And as we know from chapters 1 and 2, he's very angry. Um, and he starts out very angry uh, without the generally flowery salutation in his letter. And he gets right to the subject. He justifies where he got his information, saying that he got it directly from God, but he didn't get it uh, from the apostles, which was correct from what they heard. But he got it from a higher power. He got it from God himself. Now, as we know and read from Second Corinthians, that he had uh, some very uh, deep revelations. We don't know whether they were 
visions or um, inspirations or what they were, but it, the Holy Spirit obviously empowered him with a great deal of theological information about Jesus Christ, and that is where he gets his information. Okay? And he feels that that is far superior uh, to the apostles, and because he got it directly from Christ or through Christ, he considers himself just as much as an apostle as the other twelve. Alright? So, that's kind of where we are up to this point. Any questions so far? Yes. Apparently, that's where they originally got it. Yes. Oh, no, 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 no. They're not discounting what they heard relative to Christ. What they're saying is they're discounting what Paul said to the Galatians originally that they did not have to observe the Mosaic law. Uh, they vacillated back and forth, which we'll get into uh, tonight. All right. Yeah. That's that's right. See, and that's where the confusion comes from. Yeah. yeah. Um, because Peter, particularly, and James adamantly, refused to give up their Jewish ways. Now, we're talking 15, 20 years after the death and resurrection of Christ, and they're still trying to be good Jewish people. But you can see where Judaism and Christianity cannot coexist in the same person. You have a very inclusive uh, style of faith in Christianity but a very exclusive style of faith in Judaism, and the two can never merge entirely and harmoniously. All right? So that's where the problem comes in. Yeah. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Okay. Any other questions? No. No. Uh, Apparently, I get the opinion that there's no clarification of that, that they never really spent any great time together. Uh, and the only time that Paul and Peter came together, they clashed. Yeah, and there was two times, okay, two times uh, that we know of, and probably more, but we only know of uh, two times, but they clashed literally, all right. But it was resolved in both cases. All right. Yeah. Uh, they never spent, uh, Paul talks about that, that they never really spent much time, he never spent much time with any of the apostles. Uh, and you have to read most of his letters to really see all of that. So he never knew about No. No. He got all of his information directly from God. 
Yes. And for anyone that wasn't here in our first meeting, if you go back to uh, the second letter of Corinthians, uh, it talks about how we got that. All right. Well, I think what came out or how they accepted it was the a number of people that Paul converted and the fervor that came from those people was enough to convince the apostles. Now, we had another person way in the background who was somewhat equal to Paul by the name of Apollos who did a lot of the same kind of thing. But he never really sort of took over and he never really had the support of God in the same way that Paul did. Well, I wouldn't say he got... I wouldn't agree with your statement of getting it wrong. It was that it took Peter a couple visions and you can uh, read that in the Acts of the Apostles, it took Peter a couple of visions uh, from God to understand where Paul was coming from. But even then, he had a difficult time because of his strict Jewish leanings. Paul was obviously converted immediately, but not everyone is. So we have that kind of problem going on. Let's get into this subject here of justification by faith. He starts out by saying, uh, very gently of course, you stupid Galatians. Who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was public portrayed as crucified. I want to learn only, uh, uh, yeah, I want to learn only this from you. Did you receive the Spirit, that is the Holy Spirit, from works of the law, or from faith in what you heard? Obviously, they had to have received the Spirit from what they heard from Paul. And in hearing, they converted in their mind and heart. Are you so stupid? After beginning with the spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Keep that in mind, the spirit and the flesh, because this whole chapter is really uh, a tug of war, you might say, between the spirit and the flesh. Did you experience so many things in vain? If indeed it was in vain, then does does then the one who supplies the Spirit to you and works mighty deeds among you do so from works of the law or from faith in what you heard? So what he's doing is setting up this argument of faith through the Spirit and not through the law. 
the law and laws can only tell you what you've done right or wrong. They cannot lift you above that. For example, have any of you been stopped by a traffic cop and been patted on the back because you're a good driver? Well, have you ever been asked to come to court so they could give you a citation for being a, you know, a driver without any record of any kind? No. And so I use that, you know, as, as kind of an analogy in what Paul is trying to say here. That by observance of the law, now, don't uh, misunderstand. The law had its place. The law was given by God, or given by Moses, or, well, let's say, given from God through Moses, let's put it that way. Uh, and it had its place because it allowed structure into the Jewish form of faith. All right? And it was necessary in many ways to establish these people as a nation and as having a specific form of faith, which sustained them through uh, 2,000 years of many, many struggles. You read this particularly in the book of Daniel and, well, in, in many of the story books of the Bible, Esther, Tobit, etc. You'll read how the people were sustained by the law. And so it had its purpose. But now, with the death and resurrection of Christ, that purpose is ending. And the whole objective now is to convert people into accepting and understanding the benefits due from following Jesus Christ and being baptized. It says, realize then, it is those who have faith who are the children of Abraham. Scripture, which saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, foretold the good news to Abraham, saying, Through you shall all the nations be blessed. Consequently, those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, who had faith. For all who depend on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not persevere in doing all the things written in the book of the law. 613 laws, many of which now are obsolete because they no longer apply, such as you cannot whip your horse. Well, I don't think there's many of us that use a horse to get to work or any other place. Um, and I don't think there's many people who use a whip either except perhaps in horse racing. Right. So, little things like that. You cannot uh, light a fire on the Sabbath. You cannot walk any further than from your house to the synagogue on the Sabbath. Those, those kinds of things. All right. I read that to say, if you do follow the law, you're not cursed. Cursed be those who do not follow the law. We do not preserve in doing all those things. If you do all those things, then you're blessed. 
Cursed be anyone who does not persevere in doing all the things written in the book. It's not if you follow the law, but if you don't follow it all the way to every nth detail, then you're cursed. Mm. All right? And what he's saying is, it is a curse in itself because no righteous person today can do that. Thank you. Okay? You got to do a hundred percent, or you don't. You're not doing anything. That's right. I got you. That's Thank right. You. Yeah. You see, and the the extremes you would have to go through. Now, I think I brought in a book here. I don't know whether it was last year or was it this year. Uh, a book by Jacob. Uh, forgot his full name. Anyways, he writes this book called "A Year of Living Biblically." Uh, he is a Jewish author, uh, but he was not raised in a, a kosher family. In other words, it was very lightly Jewish. But he decides to write a book of trying to live the 613 Jewish laws exactly as they say for one full year. And he's got a great sense of humor. Um, so he writes this book in a serious way, but with a lot of humor in it as well. I really enjoyed reading it, and I recommend it highly, because you learn a lot about uh, Jewish family life uh, and the pains they go through. And I really, really mean it, pains, the, the effort they go through to try to uh, be very observant. Uh, so if you have uh, time to read the... I call it summer reading. Uh, a year of living biblically. Okay. Um, let's see. So he he makes this this case about cursed be anyone um, who does not follow the law right to the nth degree. All right, and that in itself can be. Um, Slavery, slavery to the law, and that is not what Christ wants. In fact, we get into the whole idea of freedom through our faith. Let's go on. <coughs> it says, the law did not nullify the promise. All right? The law does not nullify the promise, even though the covenant, the first covenant, was nullified, but that didn't nullify the idea of eternal life, provided that it came through Jesus Christ. It has to come through Jesus Christ, or it is not what it says. All right? It says, brothers, in human terms, I say that no one can annul or amend even a human will once ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and his descendant. Descendant, singular. It does not say to descendants, plural, as referred to many, but as referring to one and to your descendant who is Jesus Christ. And so this is what I mean. The law which came 430 years after Abraham does not nullify a covenant previously ratified by God so as to cancel the promise. For if the inheritance comes from the law, 
It is no longer from a promise. But God bestowed it on Abraham through a promise. And the promise remains. Alright? But the covenant was made null and void, but after this book was written. Alright? And so that's why Paul did, does not mention that. Let's go over to 19. Why then the law? It was added for transgressions until the descendant came to whom the promise had been made. It was promulgated by angels at the hand of a mediator, Moses. Now, there is no mediator when only one party is involved, and God is one. Is the law then opposed to the promises of God? Of course not. For if the law had, when I, this is a lot of legal uh, mumble jumbo, and I'm going to cut through a lot of that so that you get the essence of what we're really talking about. Let's jump over to the next section. What faith has brought us. Before faith came, we were held in custody under the law, or almost slavery, you might say, to a concept, confined for the faith that was to be revealed. Consequently, the law was our disciplinarian for Christ, that we might be justified by faith. Now, what does justification mean? In very simple terms, let me give you an analogy. If someone stops you on the road and says, where is, uh, let's say, where is St. Clair Church? And they're headed towards Granite Bay. All right. Say, so I said, we would say, well, you're not going to get there heading in that direction. You've got to get back on to um, baseline and head out towards junction. And so they make a U-turn and get back heading on baseline. That would put the person in the right direction. Doesn't get him there yet. He's got a few miles to go. But at least it puts him in the right direction. Okay, you got that? All right. That's what justification is. People who uh, were heading in the wrong direction for the right thing, but the wrong direction, but now they are being put into the right direction. And they're accepting that. So that's all justification really is. Being made right or put in the right direction Heading towards God. Simple enough? Okay. I know it sounds uh, very legalistic and all of that, but it really needn't be if you understand the concept. All right? Um, Trying to read some of my own uh, notes here. Again, uh, I want to get into this idea of, of faith and freedom. But now that faith has come, I'm reading from verse 25, 
But now that faith has come, we no longer are under a disciplinarian, the law. But through faith, you are all children of God in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. You've been set on the right road, so to speak. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free person. There is not male or female. You are all one in Christ, Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendant, heirs according to the promise. What he's talking about here is, if you recall the story of Abraham, Abraham <coughs> was promised a descendant, even though he was quite older, or quite on in age, and his wife Sarah was beyond uh, childbearing age. All right. <laughs> so he took matters into his own hands and had a child with Sarah's uh, servant girl, Hagar. That was acceptable in those days, and Sarah permitted it. All right. Uh, God was somewhat displeased with that. But from that point on, the Jewish people always set aside Ishmael, the son by the slave woman, uh, and said that Isaac, the son by Sarah, who finally had a child, um, was the one and only heir. Paul is saying it makes no difference any longer that all people, slave or free, are open to the promise by virtue of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. And so he's going to not only uh, making the difference between uh, slave and, and free, but he's saying Jew or Greek because there was this whole exclusive uh, versus inclusive uh, traditions between the Jew and the Greek. Okay. And, of course, there was the whole idea of the difference in circumcision between male and female. So you had all of these things that uh, were created by the law that are now abolished because the law is no longer required. <clears throat> that doesn't mean that the portions of the law that were inspired by God, primarily the Ten Commandments, are abolished. Those are natural laws. Those are God-made laws. Uh, that are written on our hearts, we all know them instinctively, uh, or should know them instinctively, as human beings, because every person is really aware of the basic tenets of the Ten Commandments, all right? Maybe not word for word, but the essence. <clears throat> Chapter 4 says, God's free children in Christ, I mean that as long as the heir is not of age, he is no different from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. In Jewish culture, the firstborn inherited in the event of the father's death, inherited everything. The wife got nothing. The other children, if there were any, got nothing. 
the firstborn inherited everything, but he also inherited the responsibility of taking care of his mother and any siblings. All right? That wasn't always carried out, but that was part of the cultural laws. All right? So now that is being changed here. And what it says here, before the child is of age, he's no different than a slave. A child in that culture, younger than the age of 30, uh, had no uh, legal standing whatsoever. Uh, 30 was equivalent to what we have today as 21 or 18 in some states. Okay. Uh, and that's, of course, uh, another reason. This is just an aside, but that's another reason why we believe that Jesus was about 30 years old when he was baptized and began his uh, public ministry because if he were younger than that, he would not have been accepted. Let's go over to the next page, uh, verse 8. At a time when you did not know God, you became slave to things that by nature are not God's. So to things that, oh, I'm sorry. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn your back again to the weak and destitute elements, elemental powers? He's talking again to the Galatians. How can you go back after you've once experienced Jesus Christ and have been baptized, how can you go back into observing the Jewish law? They do not mesh well. Okay. And really, that's the essence of the whole theme of the book of Galatians. All right. If you want to underline that, how can you turn back again to the weak and destitute elemental powers? Do you want to be slaves to them all over again? You are observing days, months, seasons, and years. And I'm afraid on your account that perhaps I've labored for you in vain. What he's trying to do is show, shame them a little bit. Uh, shame to the Jewish people or to cultures in that region at that time was an very important element to be avoided. Shame in any way, shape, or form. Alright? Um, so, what he's trying to do is embarrass them a little bit. <clears throat> I implore you, brothers, be as I am, because I have also become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know that it was because of a physical illness that I originally preached the gospel to you and you did not show disdain or contempt because of the trial caused by you, caused you by my physical condition. Now, if you go over to the next page, which Paul explains that a little bit here, right in the middle in the commentary, uh, the author explains it, I should say. Paul further appeals to the generous and gracious acceptance 
he received from the Galatians when he appeared on their doorsteps, that is, the first time, with a weakness of the flesh. Uh, might this weakness of the flesh be the wounds Paul received for preaching the gospel elsewhere? See Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11. Five times at the hands of the Jews I received forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. The Galatians did not spit on Paul and reject him, but would have spent an arm and a leg to assist him. So he's sort of appealing to them uh, by showing that he appreciated what they did, uh, and now are they turning their back at him when they didn't originally. Okay. Let's go over to um, verse 21. It says, tell me, you who want to be under the law, and he's belaboring this a little bit, I think, but nevertheless, uh, it's, it's important for us to understand this whole idea of justification by faith. Because if you recall, this is the basic argument that Martin Luther used in breaking away from the Catholic faith back in the 15th century and or 16th century um, and beginning of the Protestant Reformation. The justification by faith. Martin Luther took it to the nth degree and said it was faith alone and we did not have to observe the law and works of the law. But his interpretation of works got out of hand because of the whole indulgence problem that existed within the church at that time. And his argument went beyond the works of the Mosaic law and talked about any kind of good Christian deed. And that is not, was not correct at that time, nor is it now. All right. That doesn't mean that we can uh, be good Catholics or good Christians by uh, going to Mass and developing a relationship with Christ and totally ignoring our, la- our neighbor. But that is the extreme to which uh, Martin Luther's concept went to. Uh, that faith alone was all that was necessary for salvation. And the Catholic Church has always said, no, that is not correct. That your faith has to be expressed through your charitable works and deeds, your example and the way you live and follow the rest of the teachings of Jesus Christ. Uh, So, it's important that you kind of understand this whole argument of justification uh, by faith. So that if you are asked by someone uh, to explain it, hopefully you'll have 
some basic understanding of what it's all about. All right. Because it is quite important and it is still brought up in Protestant circles. And unfortunately, anyone that feels that way <coughs> is uh, sadly mistaken. Uh, one of the other um, misunderstandings that has come out of this, and it's, it's an extension of the same thing, it says, if you believe uh, in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord, and you confess with your lips, uh, you are saved. Yeah, I was a little distracted back there. Uh, and that is incorrect. Because that comes from Romans 12, uh, 10. <coughs> Excuse me. Yes, yes, that's pretty much. Yes, yes, yes. Right. Uh, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9. Says It says here, and this is very short, if you don't have it, that's fine, just listen up. It says, for if you confess with your lips that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Alright? That's one verse taken out of context. But if you read the very next sentence, it says, because faith in the heart leads to justification. Confession on the lips leads to salvation. It doesn't guarantee it. You catch the point? Right? Means that by leading it, you've got to observe all the teachings of Jesus Christ. That faith, uh, faith in the belief and confessing on the lips is only the beginning. Susan? Yeah. No, I know that. Yeah. There was a lot of arguments. See, I got an older version here. Yes. Yeah. There was a lot of argument over that. Uh huh. So the translation has, has changed, but that is what it refers to, though. All right. This is a little bit stronger. Yes. You said heading in the right direction. But if you don't head in the right direction, you may not be justified. So that we're continually what? Conversion is a ongoing process. Ongoing process. Yes. Yes. Not only. Not. That's right. And faith is the same way. Any relationship, any relationship between spouses, 
is an ongoing work of art. <laughs> I'd always say, that's right. Yes. Yes. Uh huh. Yeah. That's right. If you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you're going to live uh, according to his teachings. Because to be a true disciple, the word disciple uh, in itself, and who are the disciples today? Those who follow Christ. All of us, hopefully. Any dissenters in here? All right. Those who follow Christ, yes. Now, let me give you a little bit of um, present-day comparison between what's going on in Galatia at the time of this writing and a situation we have right in our midst today. Someone asked me about uh, a church that one of their relatives was buried from recently. St. Michael's in Carmichael, okay? And the pamphlet that they brought, it says St. Michael's Roman Catholic Church. Inside, talks about the day, the schedule of masses, daily mass, holy rosary, confessions, Navita to St. Joseph, first Friday, Lesson of Religious Articles, Legion of Mary, so forth and so on. Okay? Sounds pretty authentic Catholic, right? Isn't Because I knew that there was only two churches in Carmichael. One's Our Lady of the Assumption and the other was St. John Evangelist. Where this one came from, I was concerned. So I did a little looking up. They are not in the diocesan directory. They are not recognized by the bishop. I called to find out for sure. All right. What this church is, is a breakaway from the Catholic Church after Vatican II, following the excommunicated Archbishop Lefebvre, a Dutch bishop and a number of uh, bishops who followed him. This church apparently was part of the uh, <coughs> diocese prior to Vatican II, but somewhere around the 1980s it broke away. <coughs> Excuse me, my voice is going out. Um, it broke away from the Catholic Church uh, direction and retained all of the rituals, teachings up to the time of Vatican II. All right. Vatican II ran from 1962 to 1965. Uh, the 16 major documents that were issued didn't come out for another seven or eight years. So we're talking around the beginning of 1970. Uh, it took still another five or almost ten years before all of those were implemented, uh, a lot of churches did not accept 
the teachings of Vatican II. So what happens is this particular church went its own way. It retained the name St. Michael's Roman Catholic Church. It retained most of the rituals, but started deviating in its own direction. And a couple of people that are present tonight were there for the funeral, which was all in Latin, uh, but it was a different form of Latin, different words. Uh, the whole ceremony was slightly different, but nevertheless different uh, than what they remember as being a Catholic funeral back prior to Vatican II. So, you have a modern day, you might say, example of what's going on in Galatia. Paul established these churches, but people came in and said, no, that wasn't uh, the correct way of doing things, that you had to go back and be good faithful Jews in order to be good Christians. And they confused the whole uh, number of, of uh, these house churches. So you have kind of a, a modern day analogy right here. And so these things do go on. That's why the structure of the church is such as it is. Because it maintains the unity and the continuity uh, all throughout all of the recognized uh, and associated churches uh, of the Pope or under the Pope. Yes, Arcani? Um, there is, yes, the question, the question is, it says, um, well, there's two ways of looking at it. It says, Arch Confraternity, I've never heard of that, of St. Stephen, it says contact uh, a person by the name of Ed Golan for meeting times. And then there is a portion of a letter of a pastoral letter from Archbishop Lefebvre, who is still alive, if I recall. Uh, he's dead. Uh, well, hmm? Yeah, okay, well, anyways, or his followers. And if you read this, it reads like something out of the 1960s. Yeah. Yeah, there was, there was Lefebvre... Well, that's true. There was Fieber and three other bishops, yes, uh, beginning in Holland. Um, and, but they attracted a number of people throughout the world, unfortunately. But they tried. They tried. They tried, but it didn't, didn't take, apparently. Yeah. Uh, so, <coughs> when, when you grumble or gripe or hear people grumble and gripe, unfortunately they do, uh, about some of the strictness of the church, there is very good reason for it. Okay? Uh, it is what keeps it similar because you can go to any true Roman Catholic church throughout the world and the readings will be exactly the same, the format will be exactly the same, maybe the songs will be a little different, some better and some not so good. Uh, but nevertheless, 
you're going to the same church. Okay. Now, that's not to say that we have, I think it's seven, uh, what they call Latin rites. These are Byzantine rite, Armenian rite, and a number of others. I don't remember all of them. Uh, they are still in line or league or allegiance with the Pope, uh, but they return, retain some of their ethnic uh, differences. All right. The mass is basically the same, but they do have some ethnic differences. Their mass will be in their own ethnic language as well. Yes, ma'am. Yes. No. That, no. Yes. Uh, the, I think they use the word Catholic too. Yes. Uh, Coptic Catholic Church. Uh, over on uh, Kirby and, and Vernon, I believe it is. Yeah. Yes, 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 you can. But the church has always, you might say, tweaked the language of the Mass throughout 2,000 years. You know, the fact that it went from Latin, which was used for 1,500 years, to the local language um, was a major change, which a lot of people, including these people up here, would not accept. Um, no, 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 no. <laughs> yeah, we we can't. You're right. We we cannot. I, I can't give you a good answer to all of your questions um, because that's not for me to decide. All right. Um, I would think that many of the people that go to that church really don't know the difference. Well, you can see, you can see the, I hope you can see the advantage. I know, but let's, let's, let's go on. We've got a lot to cover yet tonight. The whole idea of freedom versus slavery is really the whole idea of in Christ we are free to sort of be ourselves because the whole idea of Christianity has opened the door to that kind of freedom. And if we go into this whole idea of exhortation, oh wait, there's one, one point I wanted to make. Before we leave the other part, it says, <clears throat> well, I don't have a specific verse. It's, in, it's sort of a, a note I've wrote, written to myself down here that I want to share with you. Um, because of Christ's death and resurrection, the shift from a faith based in the body that is land-based, body-based, descendants, land, protection, etc., which really imprisoned people because it didn't allow them to do a lot of the ordinary things that they supposed to do or wanted to do. But now that we have Christ, our freedom comes from the Spirit and not from the law. 
And we are not bound by a lot of minutia uh, that the Jewish law required of us. Um, most of our faith comes from the doctrines and the dogma uh, that are listed, but those are not laws. Those are statements of belief, or statements of faith. The laws that we follow are more for structural purposes uh, than anything else. Um, and so that is really the essence of what all of this is about. Keep in mind that the Old Covenant was land-based or physically based, whereas the New Covenant is all based on the Spirit. And when we get into chapter 5 and beyond, <coughs> the whole idea of Christian living is what we have to reflect on and live by. Again, we cannot take our faith or our belief in Christ as being an end in itself. Uh, the whole idea of faith in Christ is sort of a vertical. Faith in Christ is a vertical activity. We cannot leave it there. What we have to do is to spread it out by through our, our relationships with mankind. Let's go over to um, chapter 5, verse 13. It says here, freedom for service. Um, and really, it should be freedom in service. Okay? Because it is in the service or the uh, help that we extend to our neighbor, that we really recognize uh, and earn our freedom. It says, for you were called for freedom, brothers, but do not use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Rather, serve one another through love. Remember I said it was the law that was bound to the, to the flesh, and now it is the new covenant that is freedom in and through the Spirit. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you go on biting and devouring one another, beware that you are not consumed uh, by one another. I say then, live by the Spirit, and you will certainly not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh has desires against the Spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that they may not do what you want. You may not do what you want. But if you are guided by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are obvious. Immorality, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorceress, etc., etc. says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In contrast, the fruit of the Spirit, and this is the first time he's bringing this subject up. It does come up in other letters. In contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, 
patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And against such there is no law. Now, remember though, the fruit of the Spirit, fruit like fruit on a tree, is the end result of the purpose of that tree. All right? So, the fruit of the Spirit is the reward that you receive by doing these good deeds. Remember, good deeds are not the same as works of the law. That is the big mistake that Martin Luther and his followers made. The good deeds of that are mentioned here and elsewhere in Paul's letters are not the same as the works of the law. Now, those who belong to Christ have crucified their flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also follow the Spirit. Let us not be conceited and provoking one another, envious of one another. And life in the community of Christ. Um, and so you will, I'm, I'm reading down a little bit, uh, says, bear one another's burdens so that you will fulfill the law of Christ. Uh, and the law of Christ really is interpreted as you might read elsewhere. It's the same as the mind of Christ or what Christ has really wanted for you, the whole will of Christ. Remember, if we pray for the grace and the strength from the Spirit to do what God has asked of us, then we are fulfilling the will and the mind of Christ, uh, or the law of Christ, as he says here. I don't like that phrase, but that's what it is. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he is deluding himself. Each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason to boast with regard to himself alone, and not with regard to someone else. For each will bear his own load. One who is being instructed in the word should share all good things with his instructor. And he goes on and on and talks about all of the things that you should be doing here. And finally, let's get into the conclusion of, of this letter to the Romans. Uh, to Galatians, excuse me, says, See with what large letters I am writing to you in my own hand. Now that's an interesting statement because from that we have, the church has kind of uh, surmised that Paul did not actually write many of these letters. He may have dictated them to somebody else and then uh, they probably cleaned up the language and so forth. Uh, but in this case, he is really adamant about getting his point across, first of all, uh, of who he is, where he got his information, and the whole fact that the works of the law are no longer required. That's the whole essence of this letter. But now he's saying, see... With what large letters I am writing to you in my own hand. It is those who want to make a good appearance in the flesh. Who are trying to compel you 
to have yourselves circumcised, only that they must not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those having themselves circumcised observe the law themselves. They only want you to be circumcised so that they may boast of your flesh. But may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the essence of Paul's whole repertoire, you might say, of his letters. That he would boast in the death and resurrection, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and what it means to us and how it affects our daily life. And it's something that we should take to heart. Uh, because so many people are so accustomed uh, to knowing, you know, when Easter comes around, that, well, we're going to celebrate the, the death and resurrection of Christ. And a week after Easter, you know, it's all, already forgotten. Um, and you can't do that. As a good Christian, you've got to be somewhat reminded, not so much of the morbid side of the death and resurrection of Christ, but the fact that it was done out of infinite love by the Father and by Christ himself. And what did Christ actually sacrifice? His earthly body. Alright? His earthly body. Now, don't misunderstand saying, well, because he was God, it probably didn't hurt. Uh, that would be missing the point. He came to earth to be one of us, setting aside his divinity in all things, except where it was necessary to make a point or to convince people that he had the right to say what he did, meaning his miracles. All right, But he never used any of the miracles for his own purpose or advantage. So his death and resurrection was extremely painful. Uh, and he accepted that knowing what it was all going to be about. Uh, whether he knew as a human Jesus that he was going to be resurrected on the third day or not, we don't know. Obviously, as God, he did. But again, he set aside his divinity. And so he went through life and death as any other human being would. Because he was representing all mankind. And to say, well, it didn't hurt because he was God, would be totally missing the point on our part. And not seeing it for what it was. I remember when I gave a lecture one time, shortly after the movie of the Passion of the Christ, uh, some young lady said, well, she didn't see it because she didn't want to think of her uh, Lord and Savior with all the blood and, and uh, whipping and lashes and all that stuff. And yet I was thinking, because it wasn't the point or the place to uh, argue with her, uh, but she's missing the whole point, that the blood and the whipping and the crown of thorns and the nails and the sword and pierced in the side and so forth was for our benefit was really for us. And for us to ignore that is ignoring 
they're actually the epitome of the life of Christ. And so we should take that to heart. Now, when we get, yes, Norm, did you have a question? Uh, when we get into the book of Romans next week, Romans is the, well, arguably, the most theological of all the writings of the New Testament, the book of fulfillment, all right? And it is where we got most of our basic theology, all right? It starts here, Galatians, but is repeated, in most cases, uh, a little deeper in the book of or the letter to the Romans. Prior to that, there was really no theology in our faith. All we had was the breaking of the bread ceremony. Right? But Paul is the one that gave us all of our basic, our original theology. So that is why it's important that you learn where this comes from. Uh, not that we know of, uh, but you're right. But what he's probably talking about is all the beatings and the lashes and the stoning and the shipwrecks and so forth that he went through. Uh, the poor guy went through a lot more than any average uh, preacher today. Uh, I know of a few that should have gotten some of that. Okay. Yes. Uh, someone else have a question? Uh, Mike? You mentioned earlier regards to uh, a man coming of age at around age 30. Yes. And where did that come from? Seeing that the lifespan at that time was actually pretty short. So how did they come up with the age of 30? No, I don't really know. To me, it was a cultural thing more than a legalistic thing. Yeah. Uh, Yes, uh, sir. Can I talk a little bit about that? That that is an exception, I guess, to the rule. But remember, that was a parable. Right, it was I a know, yeah. Right. It yeah. would have to be something that made sense to the people. Yes, yes, you're right. Um, yeah, Susan mentions that even though I said. <coughs> That in this culture, the firstborn inherits everything when the father dies. Um, what about the prodigal son where the, the younger son uh, asked for his share of the inheritance? Well, that I have no way to reconcile that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I will be done is a very important statement. Uh, anyone? All right. Any other questions? All right. Let's end with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for permitting us to sort of hash over a lot of uh, Paul's writings today and pick them apart. But we hope that in our minds and hearts that we have learned something. We ask that you instill in us what you want us to hear, not necessarily what was said up here. So we thank you for this time together. We thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.